Hello, I'm Lisa German, University Librarian and Dean of Libraries, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the 12th Annual Pancake Poetry Reading. Today's program is sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries as part of the Friends Forum, a series for curious minds. For those friends who are here today, we appreciate your commitment and we thank you. And for those who are not yet friends, well, we invite you to join us. The annual celebration of poetry began informally years ago by a librarian, Marcia Pancake, who is in the audience today. Marcia was an extraordinary librarian dedicated to advancing poetry and literature. She planned a special reading each year during National Poetry Month. When she retired, we continued the tradition and named this series in her honor. Today, we are delighted to celebrate Deborah Keenan and her poetry. Deborah adds her name to a long list of stellar Minnesota pancake poets, Lewis Jenkins, Hyde Erdick, Ed Bach Lee, Joyce Sutfin, Mich um, Michael Dennis Brown, Ray Gonzalez, Bao Fee, Margaret Hassey, Jim Moore, Wang Ping, and Jim Lenfesti, who was our first pancake poet and is moderating this afternoon. As we begin the program, you'll notice two buttons at the bottom of your screen. Please use the chat button if you have technical questions and the Q&A button if you have questions for our presenters. You may submit your questions at any time and we'll get to as many as possible later on in the program. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. And now we will turn to Malika Grant. Malika? Good afternoon, and another warm welcome to everyone joining us here today. I am Malika Grant, Librarian for English and American Literature at the University Libraries, and I'm so proud to follow in Marcia Pancake's footsteps in this position. It is also an honor to introduce today's wonderful poet, Deborah Keenan. Deborah is the author of 10 collections of poetry, including Willow Broom, Green Door, New and Selected Poems, which won a Minnesota Book Award. Author Charles Baxter, who retired from our faculty last year, said of this collection that a great soul is speaking in these poems after long thought and meditation and inward dialogue. Deborah has received two Bush Foundation Fellowships for Poetry, a National Endowment Fellowship for Poetry, the Loft McKnight Poet of Distinction Grant, and many further honors and awards. Deborah also is the founder of the Laurel Poetry Collective, a group of 22 poets and book artists who gave many readings and published over 30 books. 
Deborah was a professor for 30 years at Hamlin University in liberal studies and creative writing and has worked as an adjunct professor at several others, including the University of Minnesota. She has taught poetry at the Loft Literary Center since its inception, and she has been a participant and continues to be a local mentor in the Loft Mentor Series. We also are fortunate to have Jim Lenfesty join us today for the discussion part of our program. Jim is a previous pancake poet, author, essayist, and a former editorial writer for the Star Tribune. Last year, he was honored with the Kay Sexton Award for significant contributions to the local literary community. He also previously served on our Friends Board. And now, please welcome Deborah Keenan. Hi, everyone. Um, I wanted to thank the Friends for giving me this opportunity. It's an honor to be in that list of names. This particular reading is uh, dedicated to three personal losses of mine. I want to say these names in honor of them. Uh, Charlie Preble, a beloved student. Hugh Batten, a friend married to a dear friend, my next door neighbors when I lived in Scotland 50 years ago. Rosalind, our third grandchild, born June 28th. Uh, and lost to us August 9th, 2020. I want to do shout outs to my kids, my grandkids, my beloved students and friends and relatives, my husband, Stephen, the in real life audience member who I've asked to represent all of you and he graciously accepted. I'm just kidding. Um, I think I did ask him. And about head. To all we have lost this year and in the past through violence and casual indifference and vicious endless racist thoughts and actions. So the readings for everyone on that list and more. Thanks all of you who decided to register. I'm honored to be asked to be part of this. Uh, I remember, remember being at Jimmy Moore's reading and Michael Dennis Brown's and Ed Bockley's and Hyde Erdrich's. My thanks to the Friends Forum and to the Pancake Poetry Series. The reading will be brief. I've chosen mostly poems from my most recent manuscript. It's called The Saint of Everything, and if time expands, I'm going to read a poem from Goodhart and a poem from Kingdoms. We will see how fast I go. This manuscript began as a collection of poems about murder, murderers, saints, and artists. It has evolved to let in a few poems, childhood moments never written about, some key poems about the world, about bitterness and judgment and praise. First, I want to read a poem called Making the Map of the World. It's a title that runs through a couple, three of my books. It starts with a Thomas Hardy quote, which is so beautiful from his heartbreaking book, Jude the Obscure. It was a windy, whispering, moonlit night. To guide himself, he opened under a lamp, a map he had brought. The breeze ruffled and fluttered it, but he could see enough to decide on the direction he should take to reach the heart of the place. To understand another's map of the world, our duty, fear, and joy. To walk out into the windy, whispering, moonlit night. To carry the lamp without complaint. Next is one of the saint poems from the book, The Saint of Childhood Says No to the Dreamland Tree. No to the shaking, no to the guarding of sheep. No to the lullaby and good night. 
No to sweet and low, sweet and low. No to the old mill stream, no. No to the curtains opened or closed, no. To the nightlight shaped like a crescent moon, no. To talk of tomorrow. No to four saints at four corners of the bed, no. To the land of counterpane, no. To the murmur of older voices in the next room. No to the real linden tree outside the southern window. And no, always no, to the dreamland tree. The next is a poem called Hospital. At the hospital, my head and shoulders exist inside a plastic tent, a box of ice replenished every few hours at the back of my head. Outside the tent, the plastic is unzipped three times a day for meals. Four times a day, I get shots in the ass, the hip, the outer thigh. Don't cry. Blood taken from small veins, hidden in closed elbows. When told to extend my arms, I obey. I'm awfully good, though it does not make the nurses love me. There's one window in the door to my room. My mother can come as far as the outside of the door, position her face in the window. Then the nurse shakes my leg to rouse me. I turn to the window, I see my mother's face through a wall of plastic tent and one glass window. This is the face I love and I wait for. One of the reasons the nurses do not fuss over me. This is protected memory. No evidence saved, just one truth from the olden days. And the three times I lived for days and nights in this kind of quarantine. What grew from this garden? Claustrophobia, fear, loneliness, bravery, stoicism, the animal ability to abide. And next a poem called Garage. White bike leans against the north wall of the blue garage unharmed after my father drives the car into the east wall. The wall unmoored, angled, the saws and hammers jumping from their assigned places, the heavy clatter as the engine revs and smokes and the mother in her swirl of bedclothes cries out, wrenches the car door open. Years go by, I see the circle of the steering wheel holding him in place as the fresh air in the middle of the night enters the garage. Oh, he is deeply drunk and deeply asleep and it is terrible to wake him and terrible to let him sleep. It's pointless to resist memory. White bike, gleaming saw, a neighbor's voice, an owl's call, a simple arrival into an east wall on a moonlit night and how it took his whole life to sleep this way. This is a poem uh, was published by uh, two of my great students who started an amazing journal called The Under Review, poems about sports and so much more. This is called For Some Reason in Our Elementary School. Dodgeball was called war. We played the game so happily with such violence. Black eyes, sprained fingers and wrists, the ball snapped my head back. My body followed, knocked out against the gym wall. I was so still. My best friend ran crying to the nurse's office as the game continued. What a gift, this wild, vicious game. All of us little white kids in my suburb, and only some of us knew violence at home, the doors closed, but here on the court, in a game we called war, we reveled in our primal instincts to hit, to hurt, to survive, to be finally alone, triumphant on the wooden floor. The nurse slapped me back to consciousness and whatever dream I'd been having was lost forever. <laughs>
so the problem with giving a reading and half crying is that your nose starts running. So, oh, well, very glamorous. Uh, the title of this next one is from a Lee Young, uh, Lee Young Lee. No, I teach Lee Young Lee, so of course I would say his name. This is Lee Child who writes brilliant, strange, excellent mysteries. He has a line in one of his books, The Heartland, where the secrets are. And I've been having a lot of discussions about the heartland lately, what we are supposed to represent. The couple found the body caught in a fallen tree. She was not a toddler. She had the grown up beauty of a four-year-old. The couple who found her wept, they had coveted her. They hated the couple who made her. Dear little afterthought, dear little worship one, 12th of the 12, and only the second girl. They did not call the cops. One waded into the creek, pulled the little girl away from the arms of the tree, pulled the girl close and handed her to the other. That one lifted her and laid her in a hollow that the deer had made. The girl's little blue sweater was held in place by a knife, piercing the sweater and the girl at heart level. The couple said a brief prayer and covered her with leaves. In the heartland, there are many murders and most murderers unnamed and free. The couple waited for the snow to cover her small body. This is a poem that was in uh, Tin House right before they, they uh, switched just to book publishing as I want to thank Camille Dungy for choosing this poem in the Heartland poem for, for a place in that beautiful magazine. Animals above me. My neighbor cradles a coyote at the top of the hill behind my house. She is screaming at me to stop being so afraid. Then the keening yet ecstatic cry of our neighborhood hawk, and then the plunge, the lift, the rabbit crying, and worst, the nightly dreams of the snake, huge yellow and green on the high shelving in my old house. Sometimes the bedroom, sometimes the dining room, the dream makes me sick. And I wake from it every night between 3.30 and 4. Comforting books do not comfort, so I get up exhausted. I start the day. Other neighbors keep telling me, as long as you see it, you don't need to be afraid. Then, in the next dream, I can't see it. I am sick and afraid. I wake up again, the bear straddling my maple tree 20 feet up. Is he scared? I am so sick of thinking about how safe I am. So sick of making animals carry all my fear. The human beings in our country, half at least, live in terror. In our world, half at least, terrified, desperate, sick with fear. And I see it. I cannot see it. I see it. This is a poem from a little chapbook I did with a wonderful artist, Susan Solomon. Write the word liar 12 times. On a white metal post in front of the abandoned gas station, right with your finger in the dust and grime into the front window. I need gas before I get on the freeway to visit my grandma. Why are you closed? Into the gravel and dirt outside the locked bedroom, excuse me, the locked bathroom door, right in huge black letters. Help me, see me from the air. You won't get far, not to the freeway, that's for sure. You can name 12 liars by heart, or you could name the 12 lies the liar told you. You might not see your grandma again and a kind of desperate sadness sweeps through the prairie grasses toward you. You lied to her once only, but you're just the fool who never plans ahead, never fills the gas tank who can't make it to the freeway ramp. Who were you going to be? This is the question that haunts your days and nights. You're out of gas, lock your car, start walking. In the olden days, someone safe would stop, give you a lift, no price to pay. This poem is uh, 
written in honor of my mother, the good heart of my book called Good Heart. She grew up uh, in the mountains in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, anyway, she loved the mountains. She had a lot of vertical energy. She liked the tops of things. Crests of waves, teapot lids, the softest hair on a baby's head. She was never afraid on mountain roads. She took the curves. She wanted to find the old lodges, wanted to see how weather reclaimed the front porches. The old stripped bare timber always hoped some mountain lion might be waiting in one of the guest rooms. She thought her spirit always ascended. She believed in almost all religions that made good use of the sky. She was kind of holy. She was kind of a sacred person. She lived a long time and then she didn't participate much in her dying. Indifferent and radiant, then gone. And this poem is called Young Wolves. It uh, comes from a million drives from our home to the airport in the dark of early morning, taking my sweet husband to the airport to go off to another country and do good work. This is young wolves. I've had so many arguments about how they had to be coyotes, but unfortunately, I'm very sure they were wolves. So I don't really want to talk about it. Young wolves running up from the railroad tracks, crossing the bridge, no cars on the avenue except mine. It's five in the morning, two wolves, one car, one woman. I drive slowly in the dark. I hit my brakes. Gray fur flutters as they run in front of my car, as the wind blows from the south, gives them something mild and invisible to run into. Child wolves, get out of the city before sunrise. Consider the times we live in, keep running. And uh, one of the artists in this book is uh, Birchfield, Charles Birchfield, uh, a Heartland artist. Um, and there's a whole group, a small group of artists who did a lot of their work in moonlight. So this is Birchfield in the moonlight. The painters who paint by moonlight belong to a secret group of the living and the dead. Birchfield sees Ryder at a canvas in the almost dark. He weeps to see his hero in the shadows at work on a depiction of a purified night tree. It is terribly lonely under the light of the moon. When the living painters see one of their dead at work, it inspires, but it hurts them. When one of the dead sees another dead artist at work, there are almost always tears. This is a poem called After the Shipwreck. A lot of my students who are watching today, uh, I often assign this beautiful hybrid piece by Paul Valeray called Crusoe. And uh, I'm a little obsessed with shipwrecks. And I think that I make all my students write poems about paradise. So here's, my, here's, here's me doing my own assignment. After the shipwreck. Paradise can't have people, so they all died. The wooden sides of the ship bleached in the sun, smoothed by waves, were salvaged by artists on their way to another island. The paintings done on this soft wood have lasted over 400 years now. Curators feel their hands tingle and shake when allowed to hang the paintings in their museums. The wandering artists died so long ago, just like the sailors before them, not shipwrecked, no drama. They lived together and one by one they died. They knew their best work had been painted on the wood from the ship, and though careless in so many ways, they protected the paintings, which hang in all the great museums, anonymous and brilliant. This is called the Saint of Abandoned Nurseries. This is another uh, saint in this 
collection of saints in this book. Um, I think we've covered murderers and saints and artists. And so we're, we're doing pretty well. I think we're, we're hanging on. The time is working. Um, this is dedicated to my friend, Susan. Um, the saint of abandoned nurseries, not babies. Plants, trees, flowers. Susan and I would go there when the mood and the day matched, hidden away off a freeway built for a suburb that never happened. As if the thought of all that land outside the city made the contractors weary, the idea of all those people appalling. The man who owned it had a past and a small staff of ex-cons, or not, maybe just renegades, secret citizens in a country with bits of nature for sale. The whole nursery was wrapped in heavy plastic. Old cats wandered the wet floors, stepping with delicate feet over the green hoses, ignoring the mice skittering between the flowers. It was so easy to be there. All the plants dripping and the few customers sweating under the plastic and the owner counted the plants. And if we bought enough, he'd point to some tables near the cash register and he'd say, you can choose free flowers from those tables because you two are great customers. And we were. Giant geodes rested on a shelf behind him in huge pieces of red and gold glass. He was a good guy, exhausted by freedom. They shut him down. Something about back taxes or other plants growing under plastic where customers weren't allowed. The saint of abandoned nurseries guards the place now. She walks the aisles. She rounded up the old cats months ago. She took them to the Humane Society, though she knew how few people would choose them. But she is the saint of abandoned nurseries not cats. So she doesn't dream about those cats too often. She just takes her knife, slices through the plastic, lets the wind and the rain come in. I think time is holding up, but I think I've got a couple more poems to go. We'll find out right now, won't we? Are we okay? Okay. Thank, thanks to uh, Mike and Mark who are running this whole shindig. I thank God it's not me because I'm such a tech wizard. This is a uh, called I Knew Her Once. This is from my book, Good Heart. Starts with a Jean Garajou uh, epigraph. She prays now to the smallest thing under the black brocade of pines. She prays for the wind muffled in them, for the fields and the shimmer of butterflies. For Valerian and Dianthus and Columbine, she prays to pray, but she cannot start. I knew her well and once and long ago, I knew her beautiful, wise, and angry. Knew her warm and kind and right, knew her wrong and sorry and still. I knew her young and nothing's changed. Knew her small, a bird, a shipwrecked thing. I knew her well and not so well, knew her broken as glass, strong as wind. I knew her wholly drenched and white. I knew what prayers she finally said. I knew her when sky was only sky. I knew when her nerve flared and fled. She prays now to the smallest thing. I never see her anymore. I knew her well and not so well. Knew the pines and columbine. I knew enough to leave her there. I tried to put a lot of wind into the reading today since I write about it all the time and several of us have been talking about wind in the last few days. So I kind of went on a wind crazed march. A little shout out to Kelly Maurer for quoting this poem to me. And uh, here it is, the wind. What have I thought of love? I have said it is beauty and sorrow. I have thought that it would bring me lost delights and splendor as a wind out of old time. And Michael Burkhardt said, the wind isn't loving anyone. 
And though I love the poem and though betrothed can make me cry, all that terrible distance between said and thought. At all those lost from my life, all I really know is that the wind, now and then, and every day and night, my whole life, does love me, a most faithful, constant lover, whom I write for in every book, who, when gone, I long for, who returns and returns again, loves some days with rapture, some days merely methodical, taking down the leaves out of duty, but in my lifetime has refused to die for love, I know, of me. And I'll end this reading with a poem from my book, Kingdoms. Uh, it's turned into a beautiful broadside by George Greeley, and uh, it was published in Orion, which is uh, one of those beautiful magazines you hope that before you pass out, you might get a poem in there. So I feel very lucky that it ended up there. And thanks, all of you. Wherever you are, you mystery people, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time. I should say, you know, there's going to be an interview with Jim Lenfesti, which is kind of scary to me, but I'm sure he'll enjoy it. And then you can send in questions and we will try to answer them. I meant to say that. Uh, not getting tired of the earth, he can go to the moon and Mars too. He can take his patronizing face, his vicious voice, his appalling definitions of loyalty. He can go. The rest of us, we need to not get tired of the earth. We need to care for parrots, even if we don't. We need to revere sand and buffalo, butterfly weed and dunes. We need to not get tired of the shattering beauty we live with. We need to not get tired of wacky little city gardens. We need to not get bored with starlings circling the holy crows calling. The prairie grass replanted blade by blade. No sleep, no sleep or at the very least, no sleeping all at the same time. The ones who want to leave for Mars seem never to sleep, yet seem unable to hear wrens arrive in spring or the last lion roaring out his furious golden protest. They won't get tired of the earth. We'll love the moon from here. We'll rejoice when those who do not love the earth can only imagine it from their new permanent homes in the sky. Thanks so much, you guys. Wow, uh, Deborah, I'm uh, kind of speechless, but I guess I can't be. Uh, as, as Deborah assumes the Zoom position before her computer, I want to remark on a detail that's not known, um, except by me and by Deborah uh, in her biography. Uh, when I was running the Literary Witnesses program at Plymouth Congregational Church, and when her book, Willow Room, Green Door, uh, came out, uh, I think before it won, but any event, she might have already won the Minnesota Book Award, I invited her to read. And it was a pretty prestigious series with me. We'd attract hundreds of people, and she would have had a great crowd. And she said, thanks a lot for inviting me, but instead, I'd, I think you should invite the Laurel Poetry Collective. They, they are a group she's worked with for a long time, the Laurel Poetry Collective, but they were not Deborah Keenan. And, and I wanted this Minnesota Book Award winner, this author of this beautiful book, Deborah Keenan, to read. And she insisted, no, that it would be her friends that she had worked with all these years, over 20 years, I understand, maybe much more now, because they had just come out with a book. Well, we had a wonderful program with her, her group, the Laurel Poetry Collective, without Deborah Keenan. But I just want to let you know what I guess you know already from her reading, how generous she is to others. 
So Deborah, can you hear me? Are you ready to roll? I can hear you. I just can't figure out if I'm visible. No, you're I'm visible. visible. There. <laughs> you're visible. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, uh, you asked this question, uh, who are you going to be? So you've got all these gifts and this stunning commitment to poetry and the writing community. I call our, our city and our region Paris on the prairie. Writers move here now. This is the place to be. It was Paris once, New York later, San Francisco. It's here. You're one of the reasons for that. Uh, you, you, know, you were involved in Compass from the very beginning. You've been teaching at the law for 45 years. Uh, you're, you edited Milkweed editions. I mean, this is unbelievable. What, what was it? Why poetry before all that, Deborah Keenan? When you were just Deborah Keenan, before you were married and kids, before all of that, what was it that brought you, that drew you into this world that you've contributed so much? Uh, um, yes, sorry. Um, I guess I would say a couple of things. Is this legit? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that my brothers and I had parents who expected us to be something. <laughs> I don't know if my brothers are <laughs> tuned in today, but I'll just say, I think our parents expected us to be something. And uh, I didn't think I was quite good enough to be a nightclub singer, which was one of my top 10 choices. I also meant to be on Broadway back when I was someone other than me right now, but that didn't quite work out. Um, I have to say that uh, the main thing about my life is that my parents were both readers. My father would be first in line to get the new Robert Frost every time it came to the bookstore and uh, books were huge in our family. They mattered, they were sacred objects. And so I really was brought up to be a reader. It was only when I began college that I started understanding um, that there were uh, students who were my friends who were actually creative writers and I I found it kind of insane on some level because I just thought the best thing was to read. But uh, anyway, I went off to Scotland when I was very young. We, I got pregnant over there. I was sick as a dog and I started writing and painting every day. And by the time that year was done, I was a writer, so. Well, you, you just mentioned painting because uh, I'm skipping ahead of my own questions. There are many that are filling in here, but. Uh, you also are a wonderful collage artist, and, and the collages are, in a way, it strikes me, not dissimilar from your poems, where you put things together, that these beautiful things that weren't together before, but come together. Uh, talk about it, uh, about art art and collage. In fact, we'll add this in. I only learned the word exfract, exfractic, the, you know, the, 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 the word for, the Greek word for writing poems about art only a few years ago. You've known it for your whole life probably because you write many extraordinary poems about your response to art. But talk about that visual art versus uh, oral art, which is poetry and your, your love for both of them and how they work together or maybe they don't. Well, I would first of all say, Jim, that my students laugh at me when I try to say that word out loud. <laughs> I, do, I do know what the word means, but it's one of those words for me that I can never say. But I, yes, I write a lot from visual art. You know, I think collage, I, I, I'm always yelling at my students that collage is the art form of the 20th century. And it's also, in my opinion, the art form of the 21st century. Uh -huh. And I think that we live in a, a time of such brokenness and so many fragments. And our job as artists, sometimes, some artists are supposed to reassemble things. 
Some artists are not supposed to reassemble things. I remember, um, yeah, anyway, I, I, I think collage uh, works for a lot of the ways I perceive myself sort of endlessly like a magpie or a crow gathering, 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 and then uh, in a burst of energy, I will start understanding how those pieces might go together. And other times I don't understand and those, those beautiful images or scary images stay in a box for years. I work a lot in notebooks. I, I've warned my beautiful children that their main job when I drop dead is you know, reading 75 notebooks and not throwing them in a bonfire. Although I won't be around to know, so they may throw them in a bonfire. But the notebooks are full of collages too. And also I don't paint the way I make collages. I sell collages, but I just paint for myself. And uh, so those, all, I need all of that. I need all of that uh, to function as a working artist. Uh, it all matters to me. Um, there are poets whose main deep response to the world besides poetry is music. Um, mine just happens to be visual art. And uh, I'm very interested in trying to kind of heal up the edges of things and figure out how things go together. Well, uh, a follow up to that, you published a lovely book of prompts from Tiger to Prayer, which, uh, three editions, they're all sold out and they're not even available on the repo market because I looked and, <laughs> and guess what? It's not happening. And your dream for that book was that people would, I quote here somewhere, uh, I imagine this small book writing in backpacks and purses inside folders, etc. It's clearly doing that. Uh, one of your gifts to the world, to your students who remark this and is using prompts. Uh, and uh, do you use prompts? Tell us about where these prompts you come up with come from, and uh, do you use them? I think kind of the the joke of my my uh, endless teaching is that um, I give a million prompts to my students, and I believe in them utterly, and I read poetry that I teach them so carefully, so that I can give them some of the ways I want them to think about where they could go from that beautiful poem to their own, but I only do a few of my own ideas out of the, the thousands, I think now. My students at Hamlin used to do sheets every Christmas called Keenanisms, and they would hand them out as a goodbye, <laughs> a goodbye present at the end, at the beginning of holidays. And those were kind of a slight remove from the prompts and the ideas. Uh, in this new book, the only two that I can think of uh, the animals that you choose in a time of jubilation. That was a assignment I gave to my students and none of them ever did the assignment. So I wrote it instead. And uh, what I said about Paul Valeré and about shipwrecks and about paradise, I, because I talk about those two things, I, I did end up finally going, all right, I have to do this. I just, I would say I have a fevered imagination, Jim. It kind of contrasts with my very calm daily life. I'm not interested in drama at all. And so, for me, it's here. Well, let, let's talk. We have many questions. So I'll ask you a few more questions and then we'll get on to the ones that uh, I could see here. But so let's talk craft. I mean, so you have this fevered imagination and uh, you're not using the props you're pounding into your students or you're, you're opening up for your students. Um, here's something I noticed reading your early poems. Uh, 
this in a, in, a, in a poem in the early days called The Exactness of Imitation. It was a path through the woods at dusk. Anyone could understand. Anyone could get up from the table and walk the path. That reminds me very much of Robert Frost's uh, uh, The Pasture, You Come To. You invite the reader in. And I think in all your poems, I mean, the, you know, so many poets have a hard time doing that. You, This is part of you. I mean, I, I've never read a poem of yours that I don't feel invited in to follow it along. Uh, do you have an audience in mind? Do you have people in mind? Uh, anybody in mind, or is that is that on your mind as you as you proceed? Uh, you know what's on my mind is: can I be absolutely understood, and still can there be extraordinary mystery? That's on my mind. Um, I know I have some readers who are, I would say, faithful readers, and I am so grateful for all of them. I am really. I am a local person. So when my books have traveled beyond the, the local sphere, um, I think what's lucky for me, my particular career is that I have never stopped getting letters and emails from people in all these years. My poems end up at workshops and they end up in retreat centers. And I, I am usually very unclear how, it got, how they got there, but I feel very fortunate I love the way poetry travels. I think tra I think poetry travels in very odd ways, which is what is interesting to me about it as an art form. I I don't I think poetry is not dominating. I don't believe in poetry as a kind of malevolent power. So I I I like that it just keeps on traveling and people kind of find it and maybe they claim three poems out of 300 and say, those are my three. And that is an honor to me. So I, I, uh, I don't know. I think I got kind of lost trying to answer that one. Oh, no, that's beautiful. Cause it's, a, and so the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not, I have to say that. To understood. You care. I mean, you care, deeply care to be understood. I do, but I, I do want to be clear that I have a lot of incredible colleagues and friends who are poets who that is so not a, a thing that they carry and their poetry is extraordinary. So I want to be clear here. There are so many ways to be a poet and uh, most of us tend to, once we get published, we kind of find the people who respond to the way we use our voice and that's, you know, lucky, it's lucky. But this is a sign of your deep generosity again, because it's we're talking about Deborah Keenan today, and you do that, and it's a beautiful thing for for we readers. Uh, here's so let's let's talk question of form. Uh, I, you know, the, your poems seem to, for me, they're kind of like uh, uh, a stream spilling down, going over boulders and rocks, and, to, and it goes. They flow so beautifully, and I don't know uh, how common that is, to be honest. Uh, and uh, so I wonder, God, do you fret line breaks and you sweat sound and sense? And do you, uh, uh, how do you make the actual poem? You know, I only have about five poems published that have rhyme, interior and margin rhyme, mm -hmm. because I think rhyming is extremely difficult. Um, but I do, I, like at the end of Garage, I'm really working with wall and owl and mm -hmm. all those uh, dark, intense sounds to match with my dad's suffering. And um, so I think about it, but I, I have to say, I feel, I mean, I'm always very cavalier about giving my students line breaks. I'm busy handing them out right and left. And uh, 
I tend to think, I mean, really only, I, I tend to feel pretty confident when the, the poems spend so much time here or on pieces of paper that I'm writing sitting in a car that when it finally ends up on the page, I feel pretty confident. Whether I'm right or not, that's a different thing. I feel like I get how my voice is gonna hand it over. You know, my students who are spoken word students who are just amazing poets and, you know, they're very careful to remind me that when they speak their poems, that's the art. But when it's on the page, that's an artifact. And I really understand, you know, uh, for me, I, I'm grateful to have books, but I also, you know, I can, you know, I'm so nervous today. I'm, I've, been in, I've been nervous at every reading I've given for 40 years. I, there's something about translating it off the page into your voice that um, makes it come, come to a different place for people, I think. Well, I, I agree with that. I would say uh, you have a wonderful voice. I mean, it, it's warm and it, it, the warmth of your voice is echoed in the warmth of your po poems. In fact, uh, this next question, I can't recall one bit of opacity or, or, or precious language or insults to the reader uh, in any of your stuff. Uh, how much of this poem, poem making you're doing is an act of discovery for you? Oh, lots of it. Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, when I, uh, let's, let's say for a million years of my life, I remembered what it felt like to be in the hospital when I was a little girl, mm. never wanted to write about it. And then there was this day after my mom passed away when I thought, oh, I, I want to write about that. I want to write about her face in the window. But all the rest of that poem, I have to say, really surprised me. My, my sense of being judged by the nurses, my sense, of, it's a line I say to my students sometimes, what do we say is protected memory? What does that mean to say a memory is protected? If you say it's protected, does that mean you don't ever say it or you say it? And then the ending of that poem, you know, what did, what did it teach me? I mean, I have to say, I had never thought in a million years about what it taught me being in that plastic tent. Um, and then all of a sudden, all those words were absolutely correct. I never changed one after I wrote the end of that poem. So I just, you know, that's, I just think that's, for me, there's a thing that happens or there's a spark. But uh, I think most poetry, when it's too thought out or too planned or too overworked, it just dies on the page. Around my uh, oh, uh, so there's a line of yours. Who had trained her for the long view? I, I uh, you know, a rhetorical question in the poem, but I'm going to turn it into a real question for you. Uh, you, gods and angels appear in your poems on a regular basis. I'm happy to see them all. Uh, but uh, give me that. I mean, you you want you touch on the spirit of real, the spiritual life, and the spirit of real life. I don't know how to quite say that. Uh, who who uh, who trained her? Who trained you for this long view? Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot of answers to that, but I'll just quickly say I think that my brothers and I. We're all trained for the long view. We just took it to mean very different things. But the thing that I think we all have, we three have in common is we all were trained to be stewards. We were not supposed to let go of our parents' furniture or dresses or their beautiful things. And all three of us have gone through 
some hard times letting go of things because our children are amazing and beautiful and they don't want it all. And we've really had to think about what the long view meant in that. I, I think that we were all expected to never give away any of my dad's books, never give away any of my mother's beautiful dancing dresses. And you know, my son Brendan and I, when we emptied my mom's house, we were throwing things out of the second floor window into a dumpster because now I have a poem about it. My mother's beautiful dancing green taffeta dress floating in the air into a dumpster. I was, we were so overwhelmed. We were so overwhelmed. The long view in terms of the spiritual life or the religious life, I was, uh, I, I think my parents were very, uh, of very many mixed opinions about God and angels. And uh, I think their, their differences made me want to pick and I picked my mother because she was healthier. But my mother wasn't really that religious, but she had been brought up as a Mormon. So she quickly had me converted and that taught me a lot about angels and God. <laughs> I'll just say that much. And then when I was 18, I just decided to pray all the time. Oh, that's exciting. Oh my God. <laughs> they're, they're shutting us down, what the hell? So perhaps, perhaps someone will let us out of the building <laughs> oh, was that a building that wasn't in our are the buildings on fire I, I, well, no they just want to close the library so we're fine we're uh, fine we're fine i'll give you one more and then i'll turn okay. i have many more but i'll just ask one more this is i your your titles are all great i just love your titles and again reader friendly they lead they lead the reader into uh, whoa what's happening or where is this going but it's all interesting but here's one I want to ask you. <laughs> when men poets you admire and respect can only answer Sappho when asked in public, are there any women poets you admire? <laughs> uh, that's a bit of delightful revenge. But do you feel <laughs> part, part of your, your role as a woman uh, poet and teacher is to write this wrong? I mean, are you working for... It's, it's, <laughs> I, I think the, the joke is I, I was certainly... A, I'm shocked as a feminist that we're where we are in 2021, I'll say that. Um, but I was brought up to be you know, very good and uh, just to accept what my elders taught me. And there's a line in that Sappho poem where I say, my, I think I say my women friends are laughing that it took me this long to understand. Um, I, it, was, it was sparked by a writer who I very much admire, who actually had told me many times that he loved my work. And then was asked at a public forum like this, uh, what poets do you admire? And he named like 25 white men poets without blinking. And uh, it was a great crystallizing moment for me. I understood finally. And uh, I, uh, I love across the spectrum of poets and uh, I'm shocked that it's still an issue. But the great thing about this, Jim, is that um, Iowa Review that published that beautiful uh, Louise Bogan-inspired wind poem, I call it beautiful. I think it's one of the prettiest poems I ever wrote. And he took it and then uh, there was another poem I had sent with it and he, he just wrote on the, the bottom of it, even though he had taken it and he said, Deborah, I mean, I'd never met him. This isn't really a poem and he signed his name. <laughs> And I was, I was just so shocked that I, I, anyway, that, that collided with my friend naming all the men poets and that's where that poem came from. So. 
Well, here I'm going to work on a few of these questions. There are quite a few here. One from this is from our friend Patricia Francisco. When you interviewed poet Elizabeth Ander for Water Elizabeth Alexander, pardon me, for Waterstone Review a few years ago, you asked a question that surprised and pleased her. What do you feel you what do you feel you've stayed faithful or connected to in your work? Has your faith stayed steady to a certain set of allegiances? Or do you feel you've tossed them over your shoulder? Interesting. Well, Diane LeBlanc, a wonderful poet, and I did that interview. And we were so thrilled because Elizabeth picked it for her, for her collection of essays and interviews because we worked hard on that interview. We, I love Elizabeth Alexander. I love what she represents and who she is, and I love her work. And I really wanted to ask her questions that I had never seen anyone ask her in all of her interviews. And she, uh, she was great. She was just great. And she really loved the questions, which made Diane and me very happy. Um, I have stayed faithful to the creek where I grew up. I have stayed faithful to my brothers. Um, I think I've stayed faithful. I hope my children feel I've stayed faithful to them and my grandkids and my beautiful husband and uh, my friends. I, I, I was brought up to be a very loyal person and I hope I've been mostly loyal. I've made some terrible miscalculations, but mostly I'm faithful to loyalty. Um, um, I, I think, you know, the Puritan stuff that runs through white America about be endlessly perfectible, never think you're good enough. Um, I, in, in my opinion, I have sadly stayed faithful to a lot of that. I've tried to shake some of it the last few years. Um, but Molly, I think nature, you know, Fanny Howe says, you finally get old enough, you go, I don't want to draw, I don't want to write a poem. I just want to go outside and look at a tree. I want to take a walk. I want to see that beauty. I think Jimmy Moore sent me that quote. And I, I think about it a lot because I walk every day and I think, well, this is the best of me taking a walk. So I'm faithful to walks. And that uh, you have a beautiful poem, I think, called The Tree or The Trees of oh, My Heavens. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah that, was a, that was a great poem to write. Yeah, it's just marvelous. In fact, it's, uh, I, I just taught a class in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book and you encapsulated that remarkably in that poem of yours. So sure. this is from Cecily Conchar Farr. Uh, I wonder if you have a theory about why poets work so, sorry. I wonder if you have a theory about why poetry works so well as our language of loss, why we turn to it, particularly in all genres to capture our griefs that has been made vivid this year, the pandemic, this year of poetry. I think a very good question. Yeah, it's a great question. I, uh... Well, I think, I think uh, poetry for me is the most sacred art. Um, poetry arrives without a screen. You know, Bachelard talks about um, there's, no, there's no border. There's no nothing in place here. It's the sacred to the poem. And when we lose people, um, we need the sacred. Even if we're not religious, even if we're amazing atheists, there are these moments where we need a, a version of the sacred. I think that when loss is done in, it's not that I don't adore novels and creative nonfiction and a million essays. I mean, I, I read everything, but um, 
for myself, I'm very impatient um, to get to the heart of the matter. I'm very, uh, I, just, I just want mm -hmm. someone to get there and say why that person was loved or why that animal mattered so much. Uh, I just want them to say it and uh, then we can go on about our lives and remember that. I, I just, I, you know, because I love poetry, it's, it's sort of what I think people should turn to when they're grieving. You know, if they, if they need to turn to language. Now, people who are grieving sometimes can only turn to music or only turn to a painting. I, get, I, get, I just think the arts in general essential. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to read a 400 page novel. I mean, Thomas Hardy can break my heart in every novel, but I don't want to read a whole Thomas Hardy novel when my dog dies. Yeah. You, know? you know, I hope this is being recorded. These responses are frankly. I have no idea, but we'll see. No, I don't either. But I, well, the I, answer is yes. Someone, someone uh, who's got very much power here said yes. So. I just add a detail. I, I have these. I've been leading these poetry classes on Mackinac Island for years, and in the very early one, uh, an elderly woman who was a good friend attended, and and she, uh, her her son had just died, dropped dead. A member of the Michigan legislature. Uh, and she was in her 70s at the time or something, but she just said the first words, I'll never forget them, why is it when I'm in grief, I turn to poetry? And in fact, she said, and not scripture. Uh, we can let that hang in the air, but yeah. she said that it's unforgettable line just to re reinforce this. So this attendee requires, have all the events of the last year inspired you to write more or less of the change to style or content in which you want to write? Um. I, I, uh, I wrote one embittered, I think quite excellent poem that I almost read today and then I just couldn't stand the thought of myself reading it about uh, pandemic times and about uh, the, yeah, I think it's a good poem but it's very bitter and it's very judgmental and it's, it's very angry and uh, harsh. Um, uh, I've written in my notebooks mostly. We we lost our little granddaughter after just a few weeks on Earth, and uh, I, I've written about it only in prose because it's just too raw. And I think that um, that may happen in another ten years if I'm still alive and kicking. And, and uh, mainly, I've made art. I'll just be very clear. I've taught. I teach my beautiful students, and I work in my notebooks and I've made a ton of collages. Words have been pretty hard uh, to come by for me this year. Uh, Paula Reed Nicaro, if I have that correct, asks, is there a proportion of time you spend daily on visual art and verbal art that seems to work best for your creative process that allows synchronicity and inspiration, which you're full of? Uh, uh, and and a craft to interact the most effectively between the mediums. Um, I, I guess I would say on my best days, I work in my notebooks at least an hour. I get a lot done in an hour. I think a lot of people with kids get a lot done in an hour. <laughs> so I learned how to get a lot done in an hour. Um, I'm certainly at my. I'm in much better shape as a human being if I get to my notebooks. I've certainly said to my much loved students, 
get to your notebooks every day. Don't be, don't, don't just go to despair. Get to your notebooks, dry your drawing, you know, do, do that stuff, write your first draft. I'm at my best if I can get there for an hour a day, some days more. Um, there's, a, there's a week a year where all I do is visit with my friends and make art and those are extraordinary weeks. Um, but usually in my real life, in my regular life, in my real life, an hour a day uh, should get me set up enough to understand that I still know how to teach and think and imagine and make. I'm a great believer in the material world. Um, yeah, I'm a great believer in the material world. Here's a question from the material world. Uh, <laughs> Keith Miller. Uh, I've been supported by the frame broadside on our walls of not getting tired of the earth and was thrilled to hear you read it today. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have anything you'd be able to say about poetry and poets and all eyes on Minneapolis this year? That's a hard one. Uh, well, I, I, I guess I would say my, I bow my head uh, to my colleagues and friends of color. Primarily, I feel they've done uh, the boldest most furious, most extraordinary work. Um, so I thank them. They know that. Um, I, uh, it's, it is, uh, all I can say on the upside is I am praying that it happening here to George Floyd um, makes a huge, huge difference going forward. I am praying it doesn't get forgotten. And if I can ever write a good poem about it, I will, but I'm not worried about that. You know, only a few people wrote great poems about 9-11. Let's just be very clear. Only a few. A lot of us tried. There were maybe four. So um, our job is to keep trying to be great artists. I believe that poets should work in time for what is being dealt us, but uh, anyway. I'd like to indulge you. I'd like, we have more questions. I'd like to end with a poem by, by Deborah Keenan and then Lisa, uh, Lisa Germain will come and say, sign off. Not betrayal uh, from, your, from your collaboration with Susan Solomon. Nothing in the world is betraying us. Not the late spring, not the gray days, excuse me. <laughs> not the wonderful liars in office. Not the friends who broke our hearts. Nothing in our easy lives works against us. Not the river carrying its burden of uprooted trees and the ghosts of those who had to let go on the bridge railings. Not the families who can't see us clearly. Not the mirrors we try to avoid. Those shiny truth tellers. It's pretty bad. Those days when we see there's no betrayal anywhere. And, the, and this, it's simply more days, more nights and what we plan to do with them. Thank you very much, Deborah Keenan. This was incredible. You were great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks to the series. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Deborah. This has been an amazing celebration and discussion. And thank you for offering us your, your poems and your insight. And as, as Jim said, thank you. Thank you for letting us into your heart. Um, Jim, we so much appreciate your contributions to the conversation. And Malaika, 
hats off to you. Thank you so much for organizing this wonderful, meaningful, amazing program today. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining us. And in the coming months, please watch for new events in the Friends Forum, a series for curious minds. So thank you all. Have a good evening. Take good care.